Well, good morning to you, church family. It is so good to be with you this Easter Sunday. It's good to see everyone in the auditorium. It's good to know we have worshipers in our fellowship hall. And to those of you watching from home online, thank you so much for joining us. Well, so far this morning, we've celebrated the resurrection with hymns and with prayers and a scripture reading. And now we're going to study God's word together. So please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 together. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 853. Now I'll begin by reading through the verses, then I'll offer a word of prayer, and then we can explore the text together. So here's what it says. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him, that is, anoint the body of Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. They were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's bow together. Lord, we are so grateful to gather together this morning. Lord, truly, every time we gather on a Sunday morning, we are celebrating your resurrection, but how precious it is to have one Sunday each year when we are fully devoted to this great event and all of our songs and and all of our prayers and and our time studying your word together are, are all directed at that event. Lord, truly the resurrection is is the most momentous event in human history. And Lord, how grateful we are for it. So now we pray that your spirit would minister to our spirits. Help us, Lord, as as we try to, to, with our mind's eye, go back to that first resurrection Sunday. Help us to see what those women saw. Lord, help us to feel something of what they felt. And Lord, would your spirit impress upon us the the significance of this event. Lord, may we all walk away from this service changed people, either brought to faith in you for the first time or brought to a stronger faith, having contemplated these truths together. Lord, I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the average American adult makes about 35,000 decisions every single day. Assuming that we're awake about 18 hours a day, that comes to 1,944 decisions per hour. That's about 32 decisions per minute, or about one decision every two seconds. And most of these decisions are quite trivial. We wake up in the morning and we choose to have coffee instead of orange juice. But some choices that we make are really, really important. And choosing what we are going to believe in is among the most important decisions of all. You see, what we believe in will shape our behavior, and our behaviors will shape our destinies. And today, we're in the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And this entire book was written to persuade us to believe in Jesus. And here in today's text, our author is making his final climactic argument. He's going to say to us that we ought to believe in Jesus because Jesus died and then rose from the dead. And this makes him uh, a special person, different from every other man who has ever lived. It makes him someone worthy of our faith. Now, to set the background for today's text, you'll recall that Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. And he died at 3 p.m. on Friday. And the Jewish Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. on Fridays. And on the Sabbath, no faithful Jew is supposed to work. And so this gave Jesus' disciples only three hours to go to the authorities, get permission to take custody of Jesus' body, then get him to a tomb, perform a burial, seal that tomb up, and then get back home. Three hours was not much time to do all of that. And so the burial of Jesus had to be rushed. Now, they did a great job under the circumstances, But even so, the job was incomplete. Jesus had not received the burial that he deserved. And so that leads us into today's text. As Mark chapter 16 opens, we we have arrived at Sunday morning, the third day after Jesus' burial. And we find three women coming back to Jesus' tomb. Their names are Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And these three women are coming back now because this was their first opportunity to complete the burial. So the Sabbath had begun, 6 p.m. Friday. It had ended, 6 p.m. Saturday. They slept overnight. Then it says they went and they bought spices. And now the sun is beginning to rise Sunday morning. This is literally their first chance to be back at the tomb. The spices that they're bringing with them were were likely um, perfumes. This was a common practice in ancient Judaism to anoint the body of the deceased with a perfume. It showed respect to the deceased, and it would also cancel the odor of the decaying body. So as we see these women just rushing to the tomb, first opportunity that they have, and bringing these spices with them, eager to give Jesus his proper burial, we can see these women were extremely devoted to Jesus. 
In fact, at this point, these women are more devoted to Jesus than the twelve apostles. You see, after Jesus had been arrested and tried and crucified, his apostles had gone off into hiding. They were scared to death. They didn't want to be publicly identified with Jesus anymore. But here are these three women, and they know the risks. They know what's just happened to Jesus. But they still love him so much, they want to go back. They want to give him what he deserves. And so they're not afraid to identify themselves with their deceased Lord. So off they go. But then we also notice that these women are still so grief-stricken that they're not quite thinking straight. Look at verse 3. It says, As they're approaching the tomb, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? You know, that was a great question. Because on Friday, after giving Jesus his rushed burial, they had closed his tomb. And the way that it was done was was the following. These tombs had these giant disc-shaped stones. They were massive. They were four and a half feet tall. They were a foot thick. They weighed over 2,000 pounds, and they ran along a track, usually on an incline up. And so while the tomb was empty, they would have this huge stone on the top of the incline with a stopper in place. But after the tomb was occupied, they would pull the stopper, they would let that stone roll along the track, and then stop at the mouth of the tomb. And then there was always some kind of a, of a wall or a fence or something there as well, so the stone could not fall backwards once it was rolled into place. So these tombs were really sealed tightly. It would literally take an entire team of strong men to push it back up track so that somebody could get inside the tomb again. So here are these three women. They... They were very devoted to Jesus. They loved him dearly, and they know that he has not yet gotten the burial he deserves. So at their first opportunity, they are on their way. They're heading back to the tomb. But as they start to get close, it suddenly occurs to them, oh, wait a minute. This tomb has been sealed. How on earth are we going to get back into this thing? It hadn't occurred to them until that moment. They were going to have a problem on their hands. You know the most revealing part about their question, though, is that these women were not expecting a resurrection. They just weren't, right? Jesus had died. His body had been placed in that tomb, and they were expecting three days later to come back, and the body was still going to be there. In fact, they probably expected that body to remain there until it had completely returned to dust. Why? Because people don't rise from the dead. They're expecting to find a body. You know, this despite the fact that Jesus had told them that he would rise. For example, in Mark 8, verse 31, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, that's pretty specific, isn't it? Before it happens, he says to his disciples, Look, I want you to understand what's about to happen. Every religious leader in Israel is going to reject me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. 
But don't despair because on the third day after, I'm going to rise from the grave and you're going to see me again. He told them that. But you know, that was just so outside of the realm of possibility for them. They didn't even process his words. Or if they did, they were thinking, he must be speaking metaphorically when he says he's going to die and rise. He can't possibly refer to a physical resurrection here. So they're making their way back to the tomb. They expect the body to still be there. They think Jesus has died and will remain in his grave. Jesus had given them ample reason to take him literally. He ministered publicly for three years, and in that time, he had healed the sick. He had brought strength back to the limbs of the crippled. He had had created bread bread enough to feed 5,000 out of only a couple of loaves. He had showed them that he had the power, in addition to teaching them what he would do. They just couldn't believe it. And so off they go to the tomb. But very soon, everything that they thought they understood was going to be completely turned upside down. Because look what happens next. Verse 4. They're now right near the tomb. And as their eyes lift off of the road and look up to the tomb itself... It says, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And then I love this little aside. It says, it was very large. The point is, this was surprising, right? They, they had just thought of this as they were making their way to the tomb. Oh, that, that tomb is sealed. The stone is there. We got a problem on our hands. But then they get there and the stone is already gone. They're shocked. They don't know what to make of this. And by the way, Mark says, that stone was big. Like, it wouldn't have just happened. How did that stone get out of the way? And then upon entering the tomb, they see that the body of Jesus is gone, but the tomb is not empty. Look at verse 5. It says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So inside this tomb, okay, it would have been like a little cave that had been carved out of the mountain. And inside this this cave-like tomb, there would have been three benches carved out. Okay, in like a, a box shape. So a bench on the right side, a bench on the left side, bench directly opposite the mouth of the tomb. Jesus' body would have been lying opposite the entrance. There's no body of Jesus there anymore. But what the women do see is a man dressed in white sitting on the bench on the right side. He was sitting there almost as if he was just waiting for these women to arrive, which he was. Because you see, according to the other gospel accounts, this young man was actually an angel. He was a messenger of God sent to help these women process what they were seeing. And here's what the angel says to them. First, he says, do not be alarmed. Interestingly, this is the same thing that the angels had said to the shepherds when they announced Jesus' birth. So apparently the the human reaction to seeing an angel 
or seeing anything unexpected for that matter, is fear. So the angel's first words always have to be, don't be scared, everything's okay, listen to what I have to say. He goes on, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. This was remarkable. The angel was telling these three women that that same Jesus that they had just seen a few days prior, this Jesus who had been tortured and had been crucified, that same Jesus that, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had, had pried off of the cross and put in that tomb, that Jesus was alive again. His, his mortal wounds had somehow been healed. His, his heart was pumping blood again. His lungs were taking in oxygen. The synapses in his brain were firing again. And the spirit that once animated that body, it was reunited to the body again. And that same Jesus who was dead is now alive. And he walked right out of the tomb. That's what the angel was declaring. And what proof had he? Here was his proof. The angel says, see the place where they laid him. The angel directs the women's eyes to that, that bench where his body should have been. He shows them that bench because the body is gone, but the grave clothes are still there. And John's gospel tells us that there are some interesting things about those grave clothes. Listen to John chapter 20, verses 6 through 7. It says, quote, the linen clothes were lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen clothes but folded up in a place by itself. Now this is something very unusual. Let's go back to Jesus' burial and try to understand what the angel was pointing to and and what these women were looking at. So in ancient Judaism, this was a common way to bury the dead. You would take a, a white roller bandage and you would tightly wind that bandage around the body from the shoulders to the feet. You'd wind it really tight. And then you would pack in spices into the folds of the burial clothes. About 75 pounds worth of spices. And then it was also common for them to use some kind of a paste And the paste would soak through the roller bandage, and in time it would harden, creating something like a a hard cocoon structure on the body. They would then take a, a strip of linen, make a chin strap out of it to keep the mouth of the deceased closed, and then they would twist together a linen turban, and they would put the turban on the head. And then they would lie the body flat on that slab. So that's how you would bury a person. Now, when the women entered the tomb on Sunday morning, the angel said to them, the man you're looking for is not here. He has risen, and here's the proof. Look at his slab. 
They looked at the slab, and the linen cloths were lying there, but there was no body. And the way it's described gives this impression, that there was the cocoon wrapping there on the slab, still wound up, spices still intact, but now it was hollow. And there was a little gap where the face would have been, but now it's empty. And then folded up in a place by itself over here is the linen turban, still nicely folded in a place by itself. It looked almost as if the the resurrected body of Jesus had passed through those old burial linens and just walked right out, leaving everything behind. That's what it looked like. And that's probably just the way that it happened. Now, this was game-changing for the disciples as soon as they came to understand this. You see, it destroyed the wrong tomb theory, the idea that, that these women were so distraught that they had actually just shown up at the wrong tomb. Jesus' body was somewhere else. No, no, they knew right where Jesus had been buried, and they went right to the correct tomb. Jesus' burial clothes were still there, They had the right place. It's just that the body of Jesus had been risen from the dead. This also destroyed the grave robber theory. The idea that that some people, maybe some of his disciples, had snuck into that tomb, taken the body, and run away to pretend that a resurrection had happened. Well, this is not the way that that, that a grave robber would operate. Would a grave robber take the time to, to, to carefully remove the body from his linen wrappings, make sure everything stayed nice and neat on the slab, and then run off with an unclothed corpse? Is that likely at all? And besides that, the other Gospels say there was a whole contingent of Roman soldiers keeping guard so that kind of thing wouldn't happen. See, they didn't get the wrong tomb. Nobody had stolen the body. What had happened was the body had risen from the grave, just like Jesus said it would. He was alive again. This was the only explanation. A resurrection had really occurred. Isn't it fascinating how none of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them give us any of the the details about how the resurrection happened itself. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, look at this this account in Mark, right? It says the, the disciples buried the body on Friday, then they came back on Sunday, and the tomb was open, body was gone, linen clothes were still there, but but nothing from Friday night to Sunday morning. Like, we've got a gap in the story, right? Like, no details about the coolest part of the story, <laughs> Like, I want to see inside that tomb. How did it happen? What did it look like when he came back to life? But do you know why all the gospel accounts don't have the the coolest part of the story in detail? It's because nobody was in there except Jesus, right? This, This story is told with all of the simplicity and with all of the gaps that you would expect from an eyewitness. These These disciples, they said, look, we saw Jesus die. 
We know who took him off the cross. We know how they buried him. We know what tomb they put it in. We, we saw them close it off. And then we went home and we were scared and, and we, just, we just hid ourselves away. But then Sunday morning we came back, some of the women anyway, they came back and the tomb was open, the body was gone, and there was an angel saying, look, there are his clothes, but there's no body. He rose while you were gone. It reads exactly as it should as an eyewitness account. You know, in in some of the centuries following the resurrection, people with very fruitful imaginations began filling in those details. And you can find stories that take us inside the tomb on that Saturday, and we get to see how it all took place and and how angels carried Jesus and and winged him out of the, the mouth of the tomb, all these kinds of fanciful stories. But... Not in the gospel accounts, you don't find that. Nobody saw what happened inside that tomb. All we know is that Jesus was dead, and then Jesus was alive again. And this was news that had to be proclaimed. Look at verse 7. It says, but go. This is the, the angel speaking. He says, but go, tell his disciples I mean, this is not something to keep to yourself. The, the man who, who lived and who died has now risen from the grave. You have got to tell people about this. And then I love, I love the next part. It says, and tell Peter. He singles out Peter. Why does he do that? Well, because after Jesus was arrested, the apostle Peter got really, really scared. He was so scared that he publicly denied that he even knew Jesus on three occasions. And after that, the scriptures say, he was so ashamed of himself that he wept bitterly. Peter now felt that there was no place in the world for him. How could there be? He had just denied that he even knew Jesus. And so the angel here says, Look, you've got to tell everyone about this resurrection. Go tell all the disciples. And don't you forget, find Peter and tell Peter because the risen Jesus wants him to know it's okay. He understands our weaknesses. There's room for restoration. Peter needs to know that he's risen and that he can come back. And there is great work for Peter to do. And then he goes on. He says... Uh, Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. You know, there are no fewer than 18 passages in our four Gospels where Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to die and be buried and then rise again, And then I will have more to say to you. Eighteen passages where he said that. And so now the angel reminds them. says, listen, ladies, tell all of the the disciples. Tell the apostles. Make sure you tell Peter because he's really feeling low right now. And then all of you, go to Galilee because Jesus is going to meet you there. And you can see him for yourself. Now we look at verse 8. 
As the account ends, these women are so shell-shocked that they are still trembling and they're still scared and they don't know what to make of all of this. So they say nothing to anyone. (laughs) They keep it to themselves. You would have reacted the same way had you been there. But you know, very soon, the risen Christ is going to appear. And then everything is going to change. These scared disciples, these ones who who are in hiding for fear for their lives, suddenly they're going to become the boldest evangelist the world has ever seen because they will see the risen Christ for themselves and know that it was true. And they will talk to him and they will share meals with him and they will receive new teachings from him. For over a month, they will interact with the risen Christ before his ascension back to his throne in heaven. From this point forward, friends, the world would never be the same. The resurrection changed the course of human history. I mean, just think about this. Here all we are, all of us, half a world away from these events, 2,000 years removed from it all, and yet we're gathered together as a local church. Our lives have been changed by all of these events. This was a a world-changing thing for all time. Here's what made the resurrection so significant. First, the resurrection means that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is the Son of God in a way that is fundamentally different from how we are children of God, right? We're children of God by creation and, if you are born again, by adoption. Jesus was the Son of God from all eternity, True God from true God, begotten, not made, one in substance with the Father. He isn't just the Son of God. He is God the Son, the divine person come in human flesh. His resurrection proves that. That's what he said about himself. And he said, here's the proof that I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. He really is the Son of God. This makes him the most important man in human history. Makes him someone that we can believe in. Resurrection has another significance. It means there really is a basis for optimism about the future. Now, I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but the world is a really messed up place right now. (laughs) Right? It's pretty messed up. And there's a whole lot of reason to be pessimistic about the world. In fact, everywhere you turn, whether it's the the nightly news or social media or in any other sphere of life, you're getting nothing but pessimism. We're all going to die from climate change, or we're all going to die from a nuclear exchange, or we're we're all going to die from internal conflicts. We're all going to die from an asteroid hitting Earth or an alien invasion or whatever it is. There's a lot of pessimism. We're all going to die, and it's really going to be bad. This, this whole thing is going to end in tragedy. And even if you don't believe that it's immediate, you know, scientists will tell you that at some point all the useful energy in the universe is going to be used up. 
And so everything is just going to kind of dissipate into oblivion. There's reason to be pessimistic without the resurrection. But what does the resurrection teach us? It teaches us that there is a God above. And it teaches us that there is life after death. And in John 3.16, it says, Whoever believes in Him, Jesus, will have everlasting life. Now there's your reason for optimism, right? Death, destruction, oblivion, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. The end of the story can be, you believe in Jesus and you live forever. That's a cause for hope. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So even if you do physically die, you will have resurrection life in the future. Scriptures say that Christ was the first fruits. See, like when you're looking out in a field and you see the, the first crops in the field starting to to spring up. And you know, once you see those first, that the whole harvest is on its way. Well, in the same way, Jesus rose from the grave. He is the first fruits. We know that there is a large harvest of resurrection to come. All those who are united to Christ in faith will be part of that harvest. My friends, there truly is reason to be optimistic about our futures. If we know the Son of God with saving faith, not, not necessarily optimistic about the, the, the current state of the world. I mean, the, the world is going to continue to be messed up. But we are optimists because we know there's a God above this world. And the Son of God is above this world. And He lived here, and He died, and He rose again, and He promises the same for us. Resurrection. And he promises to return one day and bring about a resurrection of the whole world to undo everything that is wrong with it, establish everything that is right, and to form a kingdom that will never end over which he will be the ruler. And is there any doubt in our minds that he is capable of doing that? A man who died and rose again, he can do it. There's a third significance to the resurrection. It means that we have something to live for in the here and now. We do live in challenging times. There is much darkness around us. But the Son of God is alive. And He offers life to all who will receive Him by faith. And those of us who have, He has given us a mission He wants us to go into all the world telling the story of his life and death and resurrection and teaching the world all things that he taught us. That's our purpose. And he promises that kingdom for his people which shall never be shaken. And he promises everlasting rewards for lives well spent in his service. You see... We not only have reason to to know that there is a a God above and, and that he has revealed to us in Christ, but we have a reason to be optimistic about the future and we have a reason to live today. There's a purpose for us here, something for us to be doing. There's a way for us to gauge whether we've had lives well spent or not, whether we need to change course. 
The resurrection is everything to us. My friends, life is full of decisions. Some of them are trivial, but some of them are really, really important. Mark wrote his book to drive us to a decision about Jesus Christ. Namely, he wants us to, to see and to believe that herein we have, here in Christ, we have the Son of God Himself. We have the one who lived for us, the one who died to make atonement for our sins, and who lives today as our resurrected Lord. He wants us to make the choice to bow before him as our Savior and King. That wasn't my attempt to gain your attention. (laughs) And he wants us to become a part of Christ's body, the church. He wants us to know the reality of resurrection life. He wants us to have a life of joy now and forevermore. Won't you receive the Son of God on this Resurrection Sunday? Won't you receive all that He has for you? Forgiveness of sin, purpose in the here and now, and glory for the future. What's holding you back? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for His His perfect life, for His sacrificial death, and His glorious resurrection. Lord, surely his resurrection is is the hinge on which all of human history turns. Lord, I pray that you would help us to move from doubt to faith or from ambivalence about your son to, to a deep commitment. Lord, there's nothing greater for us to believe in There is no greater purpose to be had in this life than to to live for his service. Lord, no no greater reward to to be taken hold of than the reward of your kingdom. Lord, would you draw people to yourself in faith today? Would you take those who who already believe and strengthen their faith? Give them a boldness to speak to others about the wonderful news of your son. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.